from KCRW. I'm Evan Kleiman, and you're listening to Good Food. I was a film major, Italian film to be exact, and while movies are my love, food is my life. Rarely do the two worlds collide as harmoniously as they do in the new French film, The Taste of Things. Based on a 1920s novel, the story follows a cook named Eugenie, her wealthy epicure boss, Dodin, and their mutual love for food and one another. Eugenie, played by Juliette Binoche, is an extraordinary cook, an artist really, who is confident and proud of her work. Dodin is her collaborator, employer, and sometimes lover. And in the skilled hands of director Tran Un Hung, we get to see their love story unfold at the stove and over the table of Dodin's 19th century home. Never have the words food as love language been more true. I'm thrilled to have both Ms. Binoche and Tran An Hung in the studio with me today. Hi. Hello. Hello. Hung, you're known for creating incredibly evocative cinema that is as visually stunning as the stories are just filled with very sensitive emotion. What was it about this particular story of a fictional gourmand and his cook that pushed you to make it? Oh, I think that uh, what was uh, the challenge uh, for me was uh, how to create a fusion between um, a love story and um, and a story about cuisine, about food. Because usually um, when it's a movie about, about food, sometimes we see it at the beginning and then the drama of the story will uh, take over and uh, we, we will uh, lose uh, the, the story about food here. I, I wanted to find uh, a balance between the two and that was uh, the most uh, interesting thing uh, to do for, for this movie. I, I mean, for me, as a, as, as a watcher, that was what really was exceptional for me about the film was how food was the communicative through line between these two characters. Yes. Uh, it's it's true, and um, I think that uh, in the middle of the of the movie we see Dodin cooking for Eugenie, and uh, uh, precisely at that moment we can see the, this uh, uh, fusion between uh, the two themes of the movie, and uh, everything is about the centrality of food and also the the, the centrality of love between Eugenie and Dodin. Juliette, there's an incredibly beautiful physicality to your culinary performance. It's, it's powerful and natural. Do you cook? I do cook. Are you what people call a foodie? <laughs> no, I'm in this generation that cooks. <laughs> and uh, I, I, I do my market, you know, I go to the farmer's market and I've done that since I'm an adult. So it's been uh, 40 years and, and since I had my kids, you know, I, of course I've been cooking my whole life. And I've been taught by my mother, not great cooking, you know, like we see in the film, but more 
uh, everyday basic life kind of food, but with a little twist, you know, a little garlic, a little herbs, a little curry uh, here and there. So it's things you learn throughout encounters or from your, you know, the parents you had, you know, my parents uh, were loved cooking. And, and I think I passed that need and passion in a way to uh, my kids. And, and I'm, I'm proud of that <laughs> because it's, you know, in the midst of working and traveling and all, to give some basics to your children, that's really what you want to give because it, then you know that's the tool for good health and the love of being a human being. So true. Did you have a culinary hand double for the canals, for example? No, we learned it on the spot. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah, no, we, we both learned it. But Benoit is a very good cook, and I know it for real because we lived together for a few years and we had a daughter, so we knew each other. And I think it's part of the also the harmony of cooking together that Hung was able to capture. But also Hung had very much anticipated everything with Pierre Gagnère in choosing the meals, but also observing how Pierre was cooking in his own kitchen. And we were sent those links of this, those videos where he was cooking. And so before we actually shot those scenes, we knew how to make it in a way. And so when you've been cooking your, you know, a long time, you're often behind the hands because the hands know more than you do. <laughs> do you see what I'm saying? It's true. Hung, um, watching this movie was like um, seeing the works of Manet come to life. Uh-huh. And I found that the scene that you referred to when Dondin finally cooks for Eugenie and we are taken into that upstairs dining room for the first time, the only time in which we are in an interior place of extreme luxury um, uh-huh. versus the rest of the film, which is so... Um, very pastoral, a lot of outdoor scenes, and the downstairs kitchen is very, very different, very dark. Could you talk a bit about that contrast, the, the lightness, the glittering of that particular set, and how that framed the interaction of the two of them? Yes, in, in this room, because uh, it was uh, protected. Monument, so you cannot touch the the walls. Uh, it's a lot of paintings directly uh, painted on 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 the wood. You cannot even put some some uh, some light above them. Uh, that's why we uh, we had to use a lot of candles and uh, and use it, you know, as a, a main source of the light for the scene. And that brought, you know, this feeling of softness and uh, and beauty to to the scene. So all this was uh, something that we we need to do because we we cannot do it uh, in another way. And at the same time, it was uh, our chance to be able to uh, you know to to find this kind of light with candles, and it's 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 very soft. It gives this scene its specificity and its unique. Uh, in in the whole movie, and and in that scene, Juliet, did you already know what the menu was going to be, or as <laughs> the character Dodin presented it to you, were you genuinely surprised? 
I was genuinely surprised. And that was the game that Hung wanted us to experience in real, in front of the camera, the delicious surprises of the haute cuisine, you know, the best cuisine uh, you can make in, in France. So that was the the joy of being an actor, <laughs> being, uh, you know, served the most delicious uh, meals. But I was hoping that there were not going to be too many takes and it, it just uh, happened quite quickly, you know, so I don't didn't have to eat it 10 times, which, you know, as an actor, you always think, oh, wow, how many, <laughs> you know, when you have to eat, it's always a big question. Hung, I, I should ask you about your food life. Do you cook? Did you learn to cook as a young person? No, not, not at all. I don't know how to cook. And because only because my, my mother, when I was uh, young, she always uh, chased me out of the, the kitchen, uh, saying that it's not a place for a man, for a boy. So later on, I, I, I don't know how to cook. And, um, and also because uh, my wife, uh, she's a, a very good cook. And it was the same thing. But Hung, I heard something that after the film, after we made the film, that you actually cooked something for her. Yes, exactly. I, I cook um, um, uh, young chicken uh, with a mushroom and, um, and cider. I cook it three times. The first time it was very good, uh, but the second time it was not that good. And the third time it was a disaster. <laughs> because I, yeah. <laughs> because try again, I, I, you have to try again, please. We yes, need to have men cooking. <laughs> yes, I will try again. Because I wanted to, to go too fast. I wanted to invent. I wanted to change. I wanted to, to uh, innovate. And uh, it was not, I, I, I was not ready for that. <laughs> I, I love how Dodin seduced even you. Yes. Oh, yes, definitely. I think, I, I don't know how you feel, but um, in my life, when a man can cook, it really brings something special. I think it's very seductive because it's usually in the hands of the woman. And when a man does it, it feels like, wow, you know, there's something so warming and, and special. Uh, I'm, I'm always uh, very sensitive to that. 100%. Uh -huh. Did Benoit used to cook for you? Oh, yeah. He's a very good cook. In, in, a, in a previous interview that you had several years ago, you, you said that to be a good actor, one must be a generous human being. And it strikes me that the same is true for cooking. Do you see any parallels between the two, between acting and cooking? Oh, definitely. It's, uh, it's about transforming matter. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the cook has to transform this matter. The matter is not just something outside. It's some, there's something inside hidden. And you've got to put it in a way or mixing with something else that's going to enhance something of that matter. And I think uh, actors, they have their bodies. And in that body, they have to somehow, with the intention behind it or with it, in it, you pull it up into a place that is called acting. And that's, for me, it's more being than acting. Because the best, in my opinion, the best acting is when you're, you allow things to come to you and transform despite of you. But it means to have this modesty in a way and to have the experience of letting it happen to you more than tr you trying to push it and 
with that will of like punching, you know, and showing how, how much you're acting and how, how much you know how to act. And I think when I hear uh, Pierre Gagnier speak about, you know, his cooking, uh, being a chef, he very much speaks in the same terms, that there's a tenderness that is coming into it, that is something that is, it's more soft than hard. You, you don't show your ego on the plate. You don't push it. You just allow it, and I think as an actor, it's very much true uh, in the, in that in the, in that perspective. For me, it's exactly the same thing, because I when when I'm making a movie, I don't have a strong will of uh, something to achieve something. It's uh, really uh, you need to be there and uh, looking, listening to everything, and then trying to find something that come out of the, the actors and, and, and the situation and, and the, the set, the location. Uh, and all this will uh, suggest to me how to make things. Uh, and, and it's not, uh, I'm not coming to the set with a strong will. Yeah, and that's probably why whom we got along so well, because there was this kind of a dance, you know, that I was, there was, it was not imposed. It was an invitation. It's all mm-hmm. about inviting the other uh, because creating a film, you you, you know, it's it's difficult because we have different beings, different lives, different you know energies, and how to make this into a place of harmony. Even though there's conflict in the scene, you have to find a way to find this kind of spiral that you, you you've got to you've got to be one. You've got to make yourself a, a unity in order to make it to make the best of it out of it. So I, I really felt that Hung uh, while I was working with you. And Juliet, Hung created this incredible set, this space for you to just be. Yes, very much. After this film I I I bought a farm <laughs> <laughs> and there's a barn and and I I had this, you know, fantasy of transforming half of the barn into this big kitchen <laughs> because when we were in that kitchen shooting, it was just the best because in kitchens, everything happens in kitchens. The best conversations, the best, uh, you know, sharing time. Uh, there's an excitement. You can cook together. You can peel things together as a family or friend with friends or you, you taste the first wine. You know, it's always something warm and family-like, even though it's only with friends, it's not, you know. It's, it, so this film, it pulls you into the, the need of softness and warmth and truth. That's really what, what it does, uh, I think, it, what it does in, into, into people watching it. The film was originally going to be called pot feu the iconic French stew, which is central to the film's plot. Do either of you have a strong memory or association with the dish? Did you eat it growing up? Or, Juliette, have you made it for your children? Oh, it's one of the dishes I prefer because it's uh, very farmer-like. You know, it's something so comforting about it and... uh, you can eat it for two, three days and it becomes better and better because there's a broth that is very important to the, that uh, dish. And it's uh, full of veggies. I'm, I'm a veg- vegetable lover. It's soft, it's yummy. It's, I don't know, there's something comforting, very comforting about it. 
so I've been fed with putufu, and I'm, I'm, I'm feeding my kids, and I've, I've fed my kids for many years with that dish. Yeah. Yeah, it's the same for me. <laughs> In Vietnam, uh, Hung, because you're originally from Vietnam, there's the there's a putufu, pho, the pho soup. Yes, exactly. Yes, and then yes, people say that it comes from the putufu because it's uh, exactly the, the the same way of uh, cooking it, uh, but with different um, ingredients. Hung, there's a line um, that Dodin says. He says it takes culture and a good memory to shape one's taste. Yes, you know somehow when when you you talk to um, to big chefs uh, in the world, most of them talk about the, the, the um, childhood memory of uh, a dish, and they always want to recreate what they like when they are a little boy or little girl. And um, so it's it's all about memory, I think. Uh, it's it's uh, related to uh, the time of happiness, you know, when when you don't have uh, too many problems, and um, the food is something like that. I, I think. I say this as someone who has recently turned seventy, so perhaps I'm biased. But there is something so beautiful about watching Eugenie and Dodin, who are in what Dodin describes as the autumn of their lives. In America, mm-hmm. we are inundated with television content of young, ambitious cooks. But just to see the kind of mastery that only comes with age and repetition is absolutely beautiful to see on the screen. Uh, you're right. Uh, and, and it's, uh, you know, I cannot say uh, something better than how you, you, you formulate it. It's really that. <laughs> Well, I want to thank the two of you for taking the time to chat with us and um, what a piece of work you've made, Hung. And Juliet, your performance was just, oh my gosh, chef's kiss. Just (laughs) so so beautiful. Thank you. That was actor Juliette Binoche and director Chan An Hung. We've been talking about their new film, The Taste of Things, which won Hung the award for best director at last year's Cannes Film Festival. It is gorgeous and moving. I'm envious of anyone who gets to see it for the first time. Okay, pay close attention and tell me what you hear. It's a stove with a simmering pot and the sound of vegetables gently being blanched. For years when I was cooking on a daily basis in the restaurant, I was always fascinated by how much information was conveyed to me by the sounds of food cooking. Even with my back turned to the stove, I knew what was happening. We often hear about how you eat first with your eyes or how primal the sense of smell is. But when it comes to cooking, the sounds of the process aren't often the focus. So when I interviewed Tran An Hung, the director of the movie, The Taste of Things, and asked how they managed to make the sound in the movie so vivid, so real, he laughed and said none of it was recorded while shooting. It was all done in post with Foley. I was shocked. And so we set about finding the Foley artist for the film, Olivier Tace. Hi, Olivier. Hello. 
for people who are unaware of the role of Foley artists, can you describe what the job is? Yes, of course. A Foley artist is somebody who works for the soundtrack of a film and his, his task is inside the studio to make everything very vivid, all the manipulation of the what the actors are moving or touching and try to get the the intention right on most of the sound, as much sound as he can in the studio. So the practice is to make sound on purpose, on on, on measure, on demand, what the, the story is telling. We support it in the best way we can. And everything is making is made in the studio means that you always have to find tricks to go the direction you want because if you, for example, you don't have snow in the studio, you don't have an elephant, you don't have a, a shark or a huge swimming pool. So you, you have to find ways to connect sound-wise elements to make you think that you hear the real thing. What kind of direction did you get um, either from director Tran An Hung or from the sound editor for the Foley work in Taste of Things? Usually we have a discussion uh, about the way we are going to uh, to treat the, the the whole film first. So we say, okay, are we very realistic? Are we very um, uh, brutal? Are we very um, how can I say in a more aesthetic way? Or how do we we try to find a, a major line of treating the sound? And then scene by scene, we also speak about. Uh, what's been told in the scene. So if, for example, somebody would be very nervous doing this or that, we try to to make it feel by the sound. And if somebody's, for example, um, letting a fork uh, fall on the table, you can make it very surprising or, or softer or, or very... Um, or the table resounding very, very much. So you have many, many ways to, to put sound on the same image. For this film, uh, Trenanung was there on most of the process, so we could directly exchange with him in the studio to say, okay, what do you want? What do, um, how do we uh, go in in the good direction? So, so let's take that fork dropping on the table as an example. Would a foley artist actually drop a real fork on a table, or would you use other items to simulate that sound? It really depends on what you want to hear. So um, the process is really, uh, now it's been maybe 20 years, I'm doing that uh, very intensely. And after a while, when you work in this business, you you begin to to hear sounds in your head, kind of. You, you have an idea of what you want to hear before you actually do it. So since you have all your suitcases around you in the studio uh, full with objects, it's like a vocabulary. You know what object you are going to take to have this kind of results. But for example, for the, the example of a fork and a table, sometimes the table is not doing what you want. The fork is not doing what you want. So you have to, as fast as possible, find a solution to have the results you have kind of in your head. Sometimes a fork would be like, stoing or stoing, but you want the schlack. So the fork is not helping and you have to, to go for another piece of metal or something else. 
So one of the things that was so evocative in the movie were obviously the scenes of the Juliette Binoche character um, cooking. And you would have many different sounds layered all at once that to us as humans read and make sense. But to have to create them from from the beginning seems like it is like sort of creating a symphony, a very layered experience of putting one sound on top of the other, with some sounds being quite, um, I don't know, they seem like they would be hard to do. Like, for example, boiling water. How do you have that sound of water boiling or something simmering in a pot below the conversation? Sometimes it's really um, uh, very easy just to take a little tube of plastic and blow in the water, but then it would be also a mix with the the sound um, the sound editing, and we cooperate to have exactly the same. But if you have a very big shot on the on the boiling water, uh, we could really do the the good uh, the good size of the bubbles, really to be very precise and accurate on what what we see. But for example, when we had somebody cutting like a foie gras in a very big shot, it was very difficult to find the exact sounding because it's not really a sounding. And sometimes sometimes also it's not very uh, appetizing. It's not The sound wouldn't make you want to eat it if you really focus on it. So, I mean, I think to myself, well, you can't have had you know, 20 pounds of foie gras that you would just (laughs) keep cutting. So so what did you cut through instead of foie gras? The the sound of the foie gras, if I remember well, we did it with a um, uh, a banana. (laughs) So if you you put your your microphone in a very close, uh, in a very audio big shot, I would say very close to the source, and you cut your banana, you have exactly the the sound that fits to the frog being cut on the on the screen. Since Taste of Things didn't have a score or any music the way most movies do, what kind of a burden did that place on you? Did you have to change your methods at all? Uh, not really, but something which is very specific of Trananung is the the very, very powerful editing. The image editing of his film are very, very conscious and uh, precise and creative. It's really much as if uh, all the songs were written in the screen already. It was really like a, 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 sc- a score. The, the editing was a score for us and the image moving. So except for the, uh, the sound off screen, all the in was very... Um, I wouldn't say obvious, but it was appealing to us to to create as much diversity as possible to go with the rhythm of the the, the image editing, which is very precise. Yeah, it's amazing. It's kind of like you were asked to create a score on your own uh-huh. through yes. all of these sounds. So food is often used to create sounds in movie scenes that have nothing to do with food. Most famously, I think, in Psycho, where the sound team repeatedly stabbed a melon to to achieve that proper sound for the shower scene. (laughs) We do exactly that. Yes, we do the same. We use um, pepper for like um, when a vampire is... um, 
entering the neck of his victim, like crunching a, a red pepper is, is working very well. Or if you want to do cracking bones, uh, you use a celery. A lot of different food is working very well because it has, it has fiber and usually it cracks very well. Or you can, uh, if, you're, if you have a knife entering a skin on the big shot in the screen, how do you say poireau in English? Uh, maybe peel? Like this long onion, uh, white and green. Leek? Leek, exactly. When you enter a leek with a, with a knife in a very close shot, it, it sounds very, very well uh, as if you enter the skin with a knife. And then you add a little bit of wet sound with a sponge or some wet tissue and it works uh, very, very well. It sounds like you really enjoy making those kinds of sounds. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, usually food sounds are very specific for you. you want to make things sounds a bit ugly or dirty or painful, and then you go to you go to food. <laughs> That's so fascinating. That's something that gives us so much pleasure when separated from its context can mean all of these other things. Uh, usually the first time that people enter the studio, they're extremely surprised at how, at how playful it is and how you, even though it, it asks a lot of kind of a concentration and, uh, and focus and discipline, but it's very, uh, it's very playful at the same time. So you always have to find solution <laughs> the best way you can to, to get to what you want to be heard. Well, this was so wonderful. Thank you so much. You're welcome. That was Foley artist Olivier Tace, who helped make the French movie The Taste of Things sound so delicious. For more information about the film, head to our website, kcrw.com slash goodfood. Coming up, the Year of the Dragon starts today. And in preparation, some Angelinos are heading to Costco. In anticipation of the holiday, the LA Times asked its readers, how Asian is your Costco? We've got the results next. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Welcome back to Good Food. Last year, Business Insider reported that the average Costco shoppers were married Asian American women between the ages of 35 and 44. As we gear up to celebrate the Year of the Dragon this Lunar New Year, we talked to journalist Ada Tseng about her piece for the Los Angeles Times that asks, how Asian is your Costco? Hi, Ada. Hi, that's so nice to meet you. It's wonderful to meet you. When we, um, when we at the Good Food team saw that LA Times shout out that you were asking people for their information, we just knew we wanted to hear the answers. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so excited that you thought that because I think when we put out the call out, I was curious how, um, how many responses we would get and we got a lot of passionate responses. So that made me really happy. So do you fit the Costco demographic? Yeah, 
I think when I saw that Business Insider article, I felt like they were shining a spotlight on me. And I wanted to be like, wait, it's not me. It's my husband. Like I married into this insane Costco family and you're blaming me, but it's my husband (laughs) who's an Asian American man. (laughs) But who knows? Do you think of Costco as a grocery store or does it fill a different role? I think of it as a grocery store, but I also sort of think of it as a lifestyle. We go to Costco definitely every weekend and sometimes twice a week. Part of that is because like, he's a real stickler on get, only getting Costco gas. So that's why the sometimes twice a week, because sometimes we'll like go to Costco for gas and then we're there already. So we might as well stop by. But it's not so much like he's looking for a particular item. I think it's almost like he thinks of it like a game. The coupon book is the instructions, right? And it's almost like a dare that you can go look around and see where you can get the best deals. And I think how it works for Costco, they call it the treasure hunt, right? Where there's some Costco, you know, there's some items that are in all Costco's, but the inventory varies depending on each Costco and depending on the demographic. So we have gone to so many different Costco's (laughs) and just looked around to see what's different about them. And do the Asian items tend to cluster in one place or, or does the store intersperse them? So you have to like literally go up every single aisle. When you go into the Costco, those are like the good deal ones. Those are the items that they want to tell you, you should buy this now. And they put it right in front of you. Right. And then you kind of loop around and the, you know, when you first go straight, it's more of kind of like the household items stuff. So the Asian-ness of those I think is less interesting than the food items. Right. But then when you go into the freezer aisles, sometimes that's where you'll get like really surprising stuff like the durian ice cream or, um, I think we saw like octopus fried rice recently. And then when you kind of go around the circle and you start going near like the snacks or like the noodles, or that's where you get really surprising things too, like the bird's nest soup or just like really interesting snacks that you're like, I, I can't believe this is at a Costco. So the Los Angeles Times polled readers about Asian products at their local Costco. What were your findings? Which Costco's were most frequented? Okay, so we ended up picking the top 12. (laughs) And I think it kind of coalesces with where you think the Asian demographics are. So like Monterey Park, Alhambra, for sure, right? Then you have kind of the Torrance area. And then I actually live in Orange County. So my expertise is the Orange County Costco's. <laughs> so um, yeah, like Irvine, you know, Irvine is big. And then the ones around Little Saigon are pretty Asian. And then the poll asked if your immigrant parents brought <laughs> Costco products back to their families when they visited, what did they pack in the suitcases? <laughs> this is a genius question. I'm so glad you asked that because there was so much in the investigation that we had to put in the article that I couldn't get that in depth into that (laughs) question. But to me, I was talking to my friends. I'm Taiwanese American. So, you know, a lot of our, my friends are also second gen Taiwanese American. And we would, um, we remember our parents 
um, bringing a lot of Kirkland items back, you know, packing an entire suitcase versus something to bring back to Taiwan. So I think the most common responses were like vitamins and supplements. And one person even told us that this is still a thing because um, I'm from Taiwan and now there's Costco's in Taiwan and now there's, you know, Costco's in Korea and Japan. But, you know, in China, there's only maybe like five or six Costco's through the whole country. So somebody actually even told me like in Monterey Park or Alhambra, they actually still sell a lot of vitamins there because people are sending it back to China because it's just like cheaper. or Maybe they think it's a better deal. But yeah, like baby formula, there's all these responses. It was so hilarious. What else really stuck out for you? Not just the suitcase question, but also were there top products that people were were searching for that they they bought again and again? I think people really love the snacks. Me personally, I was excited that the Irvin's salted egg salmon skin got to Costco. A lot of people talked about the Taiwanese peanut candy. I mean, people do kind of like the semi-permanent items too, you know, like the Bibigo dumplings. I think that's always there and really reliable. (laughs) I think people are really excited about the lumpia. There's like paneer there. Abalone, I wouldn't have thought that would be in Costco's. Um, Is the abalone found, is it dried? Is it fresh? Is it frozen? I think it's abalone soup. And then there's also, you know, there's like a ton of boba items, the kind of the instant boba and there's herbal teas. One of the herbal teas to me is like the quintessential, like if it's there, it's an Asian Costco because when you look at it, it's just Chinese characters. There's nothing in English. They're not even trying to appeal to the English speaking community. So there's an herbal tea. Oh, the alcohol section is a big one. Because in a lot of Costco's, they'll have like one or two things. But if you go to a really Asian Costco, like a Irvine or San Gabriel Valley, like you have sake, you have soju, you have Taiwan, you know, like different types of baijiu that would, I think it's Chinese wine or something like that. (laughs) Um, Especially around Lunar New Year. Um, Is there anything that you like at Costco? Well, I'm a single person household. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I don't know if it would be possible for me to walk into a Costco and not buy toilet paper and paper towels. And I feel like I would have to choose between my bed. (laughs) (laughs) We spend way too much money at Costco. It, It doesn't really always make sense, but I think it's just the pull of getting such a good deal. That was one of the other questions on the call out where I asked people, why do you think Costco is so popular amongst Asian Amer- in Asian American communities? And every single answer was some variation of like, Asians love a good deal. Some people talk about the return policy, but I do think if part of it's the fun, right? You know, like I do think there's food that we get from Costco just because it's on sale and we've seen it and we won't buy it if it's not on sale. But if it goes on sale and there's a free sample and we try it, we'll get it. So it's kind of like a strange lifestyle that it, I bet there's a lot of people like me where your eating habits really <laughs> coincide with what Costco decides to put on their coupon list. Love this. Thank you so much, Ada. (laughs) Thank you so much. I hope that was helpful. 
<laughs> that was journalist Ada Singh. We've been discussing the Los Angeles Times polling of Asian products at Costco. Go to our website, kcrw.com slash goodfood for tabulations and their determination about the most Asian Costco's in Southern California. In a minute, chocolate lovers rejoice. Valentine's Day is almost here. We talked to the maker of some of the most exquisite chocolate bonbons in Los Angeles. Next. You're listening to Good Food on KCRW. I'm Evan Kleiman. Do you ever want to spend Valentine's Day into the evening just laying in bed, eating chocolate bonbons with your love, your galantine, or just yourself? Look no further than Mila Chocolates, where minimalist luxury is the vibe. Chocolatier Christine Sarios founded the company in 2016. Hi, Christine. Hi, Evan. Uh, We're such fans of your creations, so it's lovely to have you here to talk. Oh, thank you so much. Tell us a bit about yourself and your history. I understand that you have a background in art. How did you get into confectionery, specifically working with chocolate? Yeah, I was on the art scene in New York, and then we moved to LA in 2005. And while raising our son, I decided to take some baking classes locally. Um, And then there was one chocolate class I took with Ruth at the Gourmandie School. Um, And I just loved making it. I loved how um, you could create so much in just one little piece of chocolate. I think the biggest joy was after each class, I would have a big box of baked goods or chocolates, and I'd be waiting to pick up my son from school. And um, teachers and parents would pass by, and I would be sharing it with them. And I think that brought me a lot of joy. So from there, I decided to just focus on chocolates. And for two years, I just practiced, tasted, taste-tested, shared it with friends and family. And um, that's when I started the company. The Ruth you're referring to is Ruth Keniston, who is sort of like the, the mother of so many in L.A. who work with chocolate. Yes, yes. Supposedly, we eat first with our eyes. So mm-hmm. let's start there for a minute. Your husband, Girk Tusarios, is creative director of the brand. How did the two of you develop the look? And can you describe it for us? Um, so I would say our look is mostly minimal, modernist, geometric. It's very dramatic. It's not like cutesy. It's like chocolate can go in in several different directions in terms Mm -hmm. of how it's marketed. And I feel like yours is definitely understated and um, dramatic. Can you talk to me about the shapes that you choose? Do you feel that the particular shapes add to the way the chocolates are experienced as you nibble on them? I think so, because... Having the different like angles and the way the light plays on the gold makes a big difference in perception. Also, the way we place the bonbon shapes in the boxes, I think, creates like a different pattern, which is really nice. Yes, because essentially, especially when you're talking about bonbons, you're talking about opening a box of all these little individual gifts in a way. Mm-hmm. Are you a bean-to-bar maker or do you source your chocolate already made? Uh, we source our chocolates that are already made, which is called couverture. And we 
source most of it that's organic or single origin. Um, the main chocolate we use right now is from Peru and Dominican Republic, and we source the two and combine them to make a 67%. Oh, that's so interesting that you're 67%, just below the 70 that a lot of people seem to be enthralled with. That profile seems to work best with all our, cho- our, uh, our other flavors. So let's talk about those flavors. It's definitely the combination of what your chocolates look like and then the flavors when you bite into them that is so striking. What flavor combinations do you like to work with? And have you had the experience of thinking that you really loved a flavor in your head or maybe you personally, but once you really got into developing the bonbon, you had to had to have that particular flavor take a back seat and go in a different direction? Well, first I started off, I love hazelnuts more than anything. I grew up loving hazelnuts chocolate. Um, so I think the first product we created was the hazelnut praline bar. And um, I loved making that because you're making everything from scratch, from caramelizing and roasting the nuts and um, grinding it to the texture that you want blending that with some milk chocolate and making creating the filling. Um, so that praline filling we use in a lot of our bars and our bonbons that are popular. Um, in terms of bonbons, we um, create flavors such as the cardamom, our black sesame caramel, that's unusual and very popular, our fruits. Yuzu is probably our most popular flavor along with passion fruit. Yeah, for me, the passion fruit is like um, an addiction. (laughs) (laughs) But I think everything from traveling to tasting at restaurants and getting inspired by certain flavors, I love trying out new flavors, textures, spices, salts. And there were a couple of flavors that we're still working on right now that I want to launch soon. Um, For example, there's an Asian pear I want to launch, pomegranate, we're working on a lime. So those things, you know, you just have to try out different chocolates, try out, you know, different processes just to get it perfect. I'm so curious how you and your colleagues in the chocolate world think about Valentine's Day. In, in the restaurant world, it's almost universally loathed. But I imagine it might be fun for a chocolatier um, and definitely lucrative. I would imagine it's your busiest time of year. How do you approach the holiday? Um, We love Valentine's Day. Um, It's an exciting time. We're right in it right now. We just love when people come in, they're looking for a gift. We help them choose what's going to go into the box. Um, they customize even their gift boxes. So, you know, we play around at the shop like, oh, what do you think about this jar, this tube inside as well? We um, handwrite notes. So that's also a lot of fun, you know, writing these special notes. Sometimes they're secret notes, you know, like that you're placing into the gift box to share. I love it. It's like you're Cupid. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you so much. That was Christine Sarios of Mila Chocolates. If you're looking for sweets for your sweetie or for yourself, head to her shop in Culver City. We also have a list of shops that carry her chocolates on our website, kcrw.com slash goodfood. Coming up. 
about a mango sticky rice bonbon? We learn about a Thai-inspired dessert tasting next. I'm Evan Kleiman, and this is Good Food. Let's head to Santa Monica to find out what farmers are bringing to market after a wet week in Southern California. Jillian Ferguson is there with this report. This is Jillian Ferguson with the Market Report. I'm at the Santa Monica Market this morning with pastry chef Kathy Asapahu. Kathy's a co-owner of Ayara Thai in Westchester, which her family has owned for 19 years. And she also has an impressive resume as a pastry chef. She worked at Providence and is currently in charge of the pastry menu at Ryla in Hermosa Beach. And on top of all of this, she's also just launched a limited run dessert tasting at Ayara Thai that runs on Friday and Saturday nights through the end of the month. Hi, Kathy. Hi, Jillian. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Good morning. You have been very busy. Yes, I have. I think a lot of pastry chefs get very busy this time of year for Valentine's Day. All the lovers need their sweets. So let's dive right into this dessert tasting. Give us a sneak peek of how many courses it is and what we can expect on the menu. Right, so this dessert tasting, we have three courses along with some petit fours and an optional non-alcoholic or alcoholic drink pairing that's being prepared by my sister Vanda. The courses are a savory dessert course and then a palate cleanser, a final dessert that's a little bit richer, and then of course the petit fours, which are just little bites at the end um, that are accompanying tea or coffee. Mm, So let's start with savory. What's that dish? So for my savory dessert, um, we're calling the course Nampawan. That means sweet fish sauce in Thai. In Thailand, we usually eat green mangoes or tart and astringent fruits with this sort of dip made from fish sauce. We caramelize it with shallots, chilies, uh, some fermented shrimp paste. So it's a really funky kind of condiment that's really popular right now because it made an appearance on a popular Thai soap opera. So all of the TikTokers are into it right now. It's really amazing because it's just kind of a really rustic, stinky food. Uh, We don't have green mangoes right now. Obviously, they're out of season. Those come uh, more in the summer. So we're pairing them with green apples. I have some really wonderful tart sundowner apples that taste really great with it. Oh, that's cool. And then, so depending on the season, can you just switch up the fruit in that dessert? Yeah, of course. You can do rhubarb as well. That's a really great pairing because it's a little bit astringent and sour. Anything that is just really tart and makes you kind of pucker goes really well with that condiment. Wow. And would you keep the rhubarb raw or would you cook it first? For me, if I were just eating it on my sofa, I would be eating it with raw rhubarb that I kind of zip the fibers out of. But if I were preparing it for someone, I would maybe lightly poach it. And is the nampawan easy to make? It is quite easy to make. You just saute a bunch of chopped shallots with fish sauce, palm sugar if you have it, white sugar if you don't, and some chilies. And you kind of just wait for it to get marmalady and reduced down. And then that's it. You can dip your fruits in it. So it's spicy too. It's a little spicy. Wow. And what else? Tell us more about what you're shopping for at the market and how it might show up in the menu. One of the courses that I'm really excited for is the palate cleanser that is being prepared with hawthorn berries or haw berries from Murray Farms. And these berries are very special to me because we grew up eating them a lot in a sort of candy called haw flakes that you can get at the Chinese supermarket. The haw flakes are a sort of candy made from haw berries and they're punched out into the shape of coins and stacked into a cylinder. They're really popular around Lunar New Year's because they look like firecrackers the way they're packaged. So we're also celebrating Lunar New Year this month. So I'm having a little hawthorn berry sorbet that's shaped into uh, a tube shape to 
emulate that cylinder firecracker shape. So I'm looking at your cart right now, and there's this flat of bright red. They look like the size of blueberries, but they are bright red. Are those the hawthorn berries? Those are the hawthorn berries. This variety of hawthorn berries that we have today are smaller. They're kind of blueberry sized, but the ones that we get from the Chinese supermarkets that are flown in from China are usually bigger. They're about four centimeters wide with a big pit in the middle. And you mentioned you're going to do sorbet. Can you eat these raw or do you always have to cook them? You could eat these raw. Uh, They're quite fibrous. And so simmering them or like cooking them down is a way to kind of ease up on that fiber. Okay. And the flavor? The flavor is actually sort of like rhubarb, Mm. in my opinion. Mm -hmm. Wow. So interesting. Kathy. Thank you. I can't wait for this. Thank you so much, Jillian. It was nice to talk to you. That was Kathy Asapahu of Ayara Thai in Westchester. You can find a direct link to her dessert tasting on Ayara Thai's Instagram. Just click the link tree in the bio. Reservations are available every Friday and Saturday night for the rest of the month. Farmers are recovering from the epic rainstorm of the last week. I was both surprised and happy to see Christine Brown here today. She and her brother Nick bring down cherimoyas this time of year from their Oceanside property up in Carpinteria. Christine, it's uh, wonderful to see you here. Thank you. Great to see you. So you survived the rain. We did. Actually, the rain was not the, the biggest issue. It was mostly the wind. Really? Yeah, it will rip the trees and... Uh, When there's fruit still on it at the end of the storm, we're very happy. Wow. Okay. Well, we've got a lot of fruit on the table today. These are cherimoyas. For the uninitiated, describe what we're looking at. What do they look like? They look pretty wild. From a distance, we get artichoke, dragon eggs, which, of course, uh, that's not a real (laughs) thing. But in any case, it will certainly draw someone to the table wondering what it is. But it's got a light green color to it and uh, what looks like scales or thumbprints all over the fruit. And sometimes it'll have little spikes as well. They're pretty cool looking. I once heard a pastry chef describe the flavor as like juicy fruit gum, which to me is like the near perfect description. Um, But you do have a few varieties with subtle flavor differences. Tell us what you've got. We do. I'll start with our newest patented variety. It's called the Rincon variety, and we're Rincon Del Mar Ranch. Um, So yeah, that one has more of a mango sweetness to it. And overall, it's going to be creamy, sweet, juicy, and tastes like a pineapple, banana, mango, vanilla, just all blended in. Another variety that my dad developed back in the late 60s is the Lisa variety, and that's not my name or anyone in our family. Uh, He just named it that because of the smooth texture in it, and that has more of a pineapple sweetness to it. A few others briefly, the Bay's has a vanilla sweetness, uh, fino tajete, and um, those are the main ones. It's a green skin on the outside, but the interior is this white, creamy flesh with big, big seeds. How do we deal with it once we get it home and want to cut it open? Yeah, so kitchen counter, let it ripen like a, a peach or an avocado. Once it's slightly soft but not squishy, you can chill it in the fridge for an hour or so, and then you slice it in half, scoop out the white flesh, It does have uh, seeds scattered like a watermelon that are kind of like a black pistachio seed. You just spit those out. What kind of work goes into growing cherimoyas? We don't see them often at the market. It's a tremendous amount of work. So I will say from seed to a tree that's going to have the the fruit producing, you're looking at at least five years, first of all. Uh, It's a grafted tree. We plant that, wait five years, take care of it, and then... 
In order to get the fruit that you see on the table, we are hand pollinating for months, morning, evening, for months. It's a huge amount of upfront investment, just crossing your fingers and hoping that you get something back and that the wind doesn't blow it off or the rain doesn't split it. So it's a lot of work and that's part of why you don't see it. Wow. Describe exactly what that hand pollinating process looks like. Yeah, uh, so if you can remember your little watercolor brushes in school, it's basically a tiny little paintbrush, and you take the pollen from a little uh, canister where you've collected the pollen, and you basically go to every single flower at the peak moment and try and do what a honeybee would do. It just This is native to South and Central America, so it doesn't quite work with the local insects and, and bugs that we have here. Thanks, Christine. Thank you. That was Christine Brown of Rincon Del Mar Ranch. She is bringing down cherimoyas every Wednesday from her farm up in Carpinteria. And yes, the family does ship them nationwide. And what could be better than a box full of cherimoyas showing up on your doorstep in the middle of winter? You can check out the mail order arm of the business at rincontropics.com. For the Market Report, I'm Jillian Ferguson. If you missed any of today's show, listen at kcrw.com slash goodfood or on KCRW's mobile app. You can also subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Spotify. My thanks to the Good Food team, Jillian Ferguson, Laryl Garcia, and Elena Shatkin, and to our engineers, Hope Brush and Nick Lamponi. And a special thanks to Laura Kondarajan and Gary Messiha. I'm Evan Kleiman. If ever there was a time to dip yourself in chocolate, the next week is it. Enjoy with abandon and no guilt, please. I'll meet you back here next week for another episode of Good Food.